You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has smicha. Hey, <laughs> I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski. Um, and we're here, of course, to darshan about old movies and vintage TV. Um, Yitzchak, we've got an interesting lineup, I think, tonight of what we want to talk about. Um, and as usual, uh, we think that perhaps rediscovering or discovering these things for the first time might actually enhance, at least not only give you enjoyment, but maybe give you something more to think about than usual. Um, Yitzhak, I think I'm going to go first tonight, and then uh, we're going to change up a little bit, and then we'll flip it from there, okay? So, uh, programs that uh, could be, in certain ways, has the greatest afterlife, perhaps, of any television show uh, that has, that is no longer, you know, it's no longer around, and that is Star Trek. Um, You know, and there still is another version of Star Trek that I think CBS... Is, is 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 running now and th- the fact that this uh franchise has such a life uh is is really a testament to the incredible ingenuity of of of, of the of that first three years of that program uh there, there were in the 50s by the way i think there was a show called space force and there were other shows, you know, of course, there were there were other programs that there was Lost in Space and other programs about, uh, you know, people on a on a spaceship. And, uh, and but there was something about Star Trek that touched a chord. And I think part of it was the fact that uh, there was a limit on the special effects. There was sort of a knowledge that special effects would only take them so far. And that really the stories that Gene Roddenberry and DC Fontana and the other writers and producers were involved in, it had to be something that spoke not just to the monstrous or to the impossible, but to the here and now. And that really the purpose of Star Trek was to project a possible future, but also to comment like all great science fiction on what was happening in the world today and how they could relate issues of the time to the imagined possibilities of the future. And this could happen with the various planets that were being studied and also the interpersonal connection. Really, the the power of the program in many ways is really, in a way, could be really emphasized just by the three main characters, which, of course, are Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. These three characters themselves are enough to carry most of the programs. Um, and I know you're not a big fan of Star Trek, but the idea of having a, a an ultimate logician who looks at things from the most logical, utilitarian perspective, Spock, and then a, a very emotional, albeit scientific person, McCoy, who looked at things based on, he's a doctor, but he's also a human being with a heart, and then, of course, there's Kirk himself, who is uh, the adventurous human, who in a way uh, is, is sometimes taken by the emotional and by the spirit, and other times taken by the mind. And, and these three together, whatever episodes you're going to put them in, whatever type of situation, the, the characterization that was put into the mouths of these actors and the way they spoke it. And of course, then you have, of course, the, the, the assembled characters, the fact that uh, gave the show 
uh, an afterlife because the show was canceled after three years. And we know that even the third year of the program, um, the, the year 1968, 1969, the program was in, in the threat of being canceled. I think it was only brought back for a, a, a second year because of a, the fans wrote in to NBC. The, the show the show was 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 outdone by many programs uh, in its time but the reason why there's a longevity why people go back to it is because there's a power to the writing now i know of course about of the the star trek phenomena you can't not be aware of it you know uh, what trekkies are trekkie conventions we know, I mean, Yitzchak, you are a person who goes to, um, you know, Monster Bash and you go, you realize that the conventions you go to are simulated by total Star Trek conventions where people like George Takai and James Doohan and maybe Shatner himself show up or Michelle Nichols or someone who played a small part in one episode. And the same sort of fan uh, fiction and fan excitement that you are very aware of of the monster films and the films that you're aware of, that you are such a, a, a husset of, you know that that exists in spades in terms of Trekkie conventions. Maybe it's, perhaps it's died down. I don't know. But with the, with the next generation, with Deep Space Nine, with the, whatever the other Discovery or, or Enterprise or all the other programs that are going on, it's, it seems to be something that, that, that doesn't have, uh, it's not going to wither away. Now, I, I don't know if it's a schuss, Star Trek, I did see one episode of the original series when it first aired. And it was the very last episode of the first series. And it was called Turnabout Intruder. And I saw it. And there's a reason why I saw it. It was on a Tuesday night in June 1969. You were in a different Gilgal then. <laughs> I don't know who you were at that time. I don't know if you were watching in your, in your previous Gilgal. But I was watching it in this Gilgal. Now, the reason I was watching it was because Star Trek was moved from its Friday night time schedule. As an Orthodox Jewish boy, I could never see Star Trek. Even in the summers, when I could watch Friday evening programs that started in my time zone, which was a central standard time zone in Memphis, I could see programs that were the seven to eight programs or the eight to nine or the six to seven programs, the seven to eight, because Shabbos was around 8 o'clock or 8.20, so I remember my brother and I would watch shows like Friday Night's Amazing, uh, which is now called Steampunk, but the Wild Wild West, which was uh, which was a, an incredibly exciting, interesting series that we would watch, and we were so happy that we could watch some of the summer reruns of the program. But Star Trek, even the summer reruns were impossible to watch because they were shown at 10 from the, from the 9 to 10 time which a person who kept Shabbos wouldn't be able to watch. But at the last season, as the show was heading towards oblivion, they thought, and cancellation, NBC decided to move the program to Tuesday evening. The original, uh, this episode was supposed to air as part of this, the last episode ever. And it was <laughs> because Dwight Eisenhower had died earlier that day, they preempted the program for a tribute to Dwight Eisenhower. Eventually, they showed this episode for the very first time, and it took me, I, I want to tell you, I still can't get over that episode. And we are talking here, Yitzhak, over 50 years, 50-something years since I saw it. And the reason why it was so uh, impressive to me, because what happened was Kirk 
visiting this planet that has radiation in it and they're trying to find the survivors, discovers a woman there, Dr. Janice Lester, who is someone that it becomes clear later they had some sort of dalliance. They went to school together, officer training school together. She is sort of like, has a minor type of command where she is has run what was happening over there. And somehow she is able to realizing that the distress signal has come out, she lures Kirk in a way that although she feigns that she is not able to do anything, she really does is able to lure him to some sort of apparatus that is able to create some sort of switching of her mind into his body. And she is able to make this switch happen. And most of the episode, William Shatner as Kirk is actually, in a way, really the, the woman, Janice Lester, inhabiting his body. And the I remember the program, the glory that Janice Lester, now that she stole his body and she knocks herself out, Kirk is now trapped in her body. Um, and now she goes to take over the Enterprise, which is something that she feels was denied her. She's been a woman and she hasn't, she's been overlooked and she feels that the, the of course, there was a, a Star Trek program years later that they uh, I think was Captain Janeway some sort of woman that was running the Enterprise right what it was called one of the one of the the, the the offshoots but in this original Star Trek there was this idea that a woman can never make it as the head of the uh, the uh, to run the to be a, a ship commander to, to actually uh, be a Starfleet commander and now she has her chance because she's stolen Kirk's body and I remember that that Spock notices there's something a little bit off he's a little bit different and he since she he was exposed to radiation i remember he had to go for a physical and here he, then you know he takes off his shirt shatner you know showing whatever you know type of muscular body he had and 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 really here's this woman relishing the fact that she is now and taken over this man's body and that she's going to live and she's going to be that man and she's going to finally be him and he is going to be trapped in her body it, it, it was so shocking. Again, I was only nine years old, but I remember how unnerving this was, how of an assault this was on my sense of identity. Um, and the program is, is, is really deals with the fact that, that, that Kirk, who was actually her, Janice, uh, is not able to deal with this switch. And in many ways, uh, is, is is part of you know he, you know there's a, there's an element of 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 what we would call today like you know uh, you know like like homosexual type of behavior like the stereotypical homosexual behavior that or, or types of flourishes that despite the fact that he's glorying in this man's body but he sort of sort of has elements of that that Shatner sort of like allowed to happen uh, that that you could see that it was a you know that that this isn't a man and a man that there's somehow there's elements indicating that this is a woman who is somehow playing with the fact that she she could be a man but you know the the the, the greatest part of the episode to me is the fact that you know um you know uh, the the what is the es- deals with what is the essence of a human being because the erratic actions of of uh, uh, of the kirk and then when lester who's really Kirk, awakes, she's able to convince Spock 
based on stories of what they've been through together. And then, of course, there's a Vulcan mind meld where he realizes that despite the fact that this is Janice Lester, but the mind, the soul is the soul of Kirk. And, and, and there becomes a court martial the last scene it's always you know it's funny it's a space opera but the last scene is some sort of big trial like a perry mason show and in in the last scene um uh she takes the stand making this incredible uh declaration that she is indeed kirk and he is not so um kirk is uh, kirk uh says to um kirk says to uh to to lester you claim that you're Captain James T. Kirk? No, I'm not Captain Kirk. That's very apparent. I claim that whatever it is that makes James Kirk a living being special to himself is being held here in this body. Oh, well. So, as I understand it, I am Dr. Janice Lester. That's very clever, but I didn't say it. I said the body of James Kirk is being used by Dr. Janice Lester. Hmm, a subtlety that somehow escapes me. I assume that the switch was arrived at mutual agreement. No, it was brought about by a violent attack by Dr. Lester and the use of equipment she discovered on this planet called Camus 2. Violence by the lady perpetrated on Captain Kirk? I asked the assembled personnel to look at Dr. Janice Lester and visualize that moment. Can you, can you tell me why Janice Lester would agree to this ludicrous exchange? Yes, to get the power she craved, to attain a position she didn't merit by temperament or training. And most of all, she wanted to murder James Kirk, a man who once loved her. But her intense hatred of her own womanhood made life with her impossible. So this is an exact quote from the series. I can't say I remember it word for word, but the tone of it was in my mind, which is, what makes you you? Yes, of course, if that body is got all the organisms and cells of Kirk. The body is Kirk. And yet there's something else that's bigger than that person. And maybe you could lose that. And maybe it can be stolen from you. And if it's stolen from you, that is the most important essence that you have, is that thing that makes you you, the soul. Now, this episode was written by Roddenberry originally, but it was redone uh, by uh, by one of a Jewish fellow by Fred Friedberger, uh, the the director was a Jewish person, Herb Wallerstein, of course Shatner himself Jewish, Spock Jewish, um, but it really in a way touches I think it's like on on the primal sense of what a human being is. Um, now it also deals with the idea of a feminism. It deals with women wanting to be women and agreeing to be women now in the star trek world was the star trek world in the 1960s completely equal it's interesting it's like when i did some research on this episode i discovered that in the original treatment the very last scene was to have kirk back in his body somehow it happens through some sort of hocus pocus at the end that kirk gets his body back but if they're sure is there a little bit of lester in her still in him so supposedly when a, a very attractive woman comes on the deck Kirk shows his usual male interest, and that's how they know he's back. Now, they cut that out, but that shows you, I mean, that, thank God they did. They cut that out of the episode, but that's where, that was their mindset. It was not what we would call the liberated mindset of today, but it was definitely pushing for that. If you remember what I said, she was uncomfortable with her womanhood, uh, and, 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 and there was an idea even then 
it was a way to discover some sort of essence without coveting what the other person has. There was a way to find greatness without destroying and wanting to have to steal from somebody else. All of that stuff really resonated in me. And it's the type of thing you took, as you know, you don't need much special effects. You need good acting to be able to do that. Now, I have to say, before you respond, this episode is the most, one of the most hated episodes by Trekkies. When they have votes about the worst episodes, this always gets in there. But all I can tell you is I've seen the whole run of the original series. I don't think I've seen this one more than once or twice. But the first time I saw it, it left such a deep imprint in me. It still unnerves me about the idea of, of, of being holding on to your own essence. Go ahead, Yitzchak. I've never seen this episode. I've only seen a handful of episodes, and that that's not one that I've seen. Usually, uh, if I watch Star Trek, it's it's after Spanguli, uh ten o'clock at night, mostly Shabbos. It's when it when it plays on me TV over here. Um, but certainly, those themes uh, are ones that resonate throughout other films. Uh, although I think that was probably the first one that I could think of. Um, where that science fiction idea took on the gender bending uh, role that, you know, I, I'm not familiar with any other science fiction film or TV episode, uh, no episodes of the Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, that would that took that particular aspect, meaning it, it, whenever someone's body was stolen, it was always male to male or female to female. There was not this idea from one to the other and i can i can understand how that would be unnerving um you know now that you know there's so much discussion about these types of ideas in the world you know it it probably would not be as unnerving today but certainly i can understand that was certainly breaking a barrier whether positive or negative it was it was crossing a line and uh well, Star, Star Trek did that, as you know, uh, look, it, today it all seems mild, but of course it had the first interracial kiss where, you know, where Kirk is, is being managed by some uh, uber mind that causes, you know, to play with the members of the Enterprise and he ends up, uh, you know, kissing Ahura, uh, De- Denise Nichols, who plays uh, the lieutenant, the, the communications officer. That was the first interracial kiss on television. So, you know, Star Trek is, is, today those steps seem very mild, but, you know, Star Trek was, uh, was a groundbreaker as far as that goes. But you're right. This is the idea of switching bodies and brains going in. That has a pretty old Hollywood tradition. I know you've got a, a goodie on that one as well, right? Well, I have, I have two movies in mind, but I, I think I'll start with the more famous of the two. Uh, I don't want to get into the film too much. It's a very well-known film, uh, and that is, and the classic, probably one of the best of the '50s science fiction movies, and not the only one to, not even the first one to look into this subject. But it's the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, which you know became really an, uh, you know a classic. They term the Pod People. I, I there's a comic strip that I read called Barney. Much on special effects the idea that you can be replaced and taken over 
right? The, the, uh, right? I, I think basically the way it works is, although the movie doesn't go into too much you know, elaboration of you know, exposition of what exactly is going on, but it seems like whatever these beings are, they plant themselves near you and somehow planting themselves in the ground or something, they're able to replicate who you are and create a, a, a complete copy of you. Now, unlike the Star Trek episode that I referred to, um, where I, I assume the memories were not intact, these pod people can actually, once, once they kill you, as it were, and they've, they've siphoned off enough of who you are, and then they grow themselves into a version of you, then basically they have all your memories <laughs> completely, correct? Yeah, but they don't have the emotions. They don't have, and that's that's the difference. Whereas in in the Star Trek episode, you have the emotions. You have you know the a lot more of the essence that to the point where you know almost that the soul is captured. Here, it's it's almost like it, you have the body without the soul. That's that's one, and it's a very you know strong spiritual aspect of this of this movie. Of the and yeah, I, I if we could. Today was the Sarbatavis, and I and I, I I reflect often on the Sarbatavis about how the Targum of Shivam, the, the Septuagint, was translated on the eighth of Tavis, and it's one of the reasons why we fast. And it seems so incongruous. Why should we fast? Because the the Torah was translated to another language, and in a miraculous way, it should be a, a thing to celebrate. But the the problem was, among many other things, was that the Septuagint was a body without a soul. It was a it was a a pod people copy of the Torah where you only had the body was replicated but the neshama was not replicated the way that the Targumunclus uh, on the other hand that we celebrate captures the neshama of the Torah the, the, the Septuagint is, is the pod people of the Torah yes. in a certain sense yes, I just yes. thought about that now so it's, yes that is, that is, I, I, this, is, this is a Kiddush that no one has ever said before but, yeah it's, but, yes. but the, the thing that really strikes me about that movie and like you said that it's the acting as opposed to the special effects that really captures this film is very well acted very well directed but the fascinating thing is is the errors of the film enhance the film in a way, meaning it is a film that has a total lack of continuity. That's something that's so important in television and in film to ensure that there's continuity. And, and often a sign of ineptness in a film is a lack of continuity when you have you know day for night shots and they switch back and forth and all kinds of inept ways to make films. And here it was intentional it would seem that there is not this continuity, meaning like you just said, we don't really know how it happens. And there's, you know, throughout the movie, you have this sense of that the bodies are being replicated by the pods and it's not your body that's being, that, you know, transformed. And, 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 and I think Kevin, movie, Kevin McCarthy has a difficult time because once he senses what's going on, he can't get people to believe it because, right. because the person is an exact replica. Right. And a sense of humor. Right. You know, a sense of humor. That's that's somehow the difference. You know, many of us walk days and days without discovering our our sense of humor or our feelings. Right. But um, and we can all smile and pretend like we're feeling something. So nobody believes him. I think that's part of the the paranoia of the film is that even when he discovers that this has happened and that they have taken over. Uh, and there and, and and more of them and as and and again part of it is also i guess the 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 incredible conceit that 
when you sleep, that's when they're going to get you, right? Of course, everybody needs to sleep. And it's when you sleep. And when we think we're waking up, as you say, and I'll be rabbinic too, as a new neshama, oh boy, you aren't a new neshama. This is, this is the, the ultimate shade, right? Washing negovas is not going to help you on this, baby. <laughs> because you, you've gone into sleep. The kayakatuma is taking you over completely. You're not at all the same person. Abriya yeah. Chadasha, yes, yeah. you are. You are. Yeah. As the, we say part of the reason you're supposed to wash the Tivas Yadayim is because when yeah. you wake up, you're like Abriya Chadasha in the invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> you are a complete different Abriya Chadasha. Gimagamri. <laughs> that that was what I was getting to is that throughout the movie we're presented that the pod people are transforming and replacing. Uh, and he, and then at the end of the movie, his fiance falls asleep for a second while they're kissing. And and during that moment, she is transformed, and you don't see that it's growing out of a pod. And I think that lack of continuity lends itself to make it seem like, make us question as to whether or not this is reality, or it is his fantasy, it is his hysteria, it is his hallucination. And it's only at, and really at the end of the movie, it was supposed to remain ambiguous until they changed the end of the movie to make it that, you know, they actually did find uh, that these pods are being, you know, sent to other cities, and and it's confirmed that he's not imagining this. But all throughout the movie, you have this sense of, is he experiencing? Uh, is this mental illness? You know, someone who, as someone who works among mentally ill people, people who live, you know, with these types of fantasies in their minds as their reality. I know a lot of people uh, that I minister to, whether in the in the prison or in the hospital, who really believe that. Uh, you know, the, the COs around them are, are actually, you know, hybrid extraterrestrials and all kinds of things that they, they're sure of these things. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not even a question to them. And well, again, you know, he, you know, Kevin McCarthy breaks the fourth wall. Everybody knows this. I'm not spoiling anything at the very end of the film where he looks out to the audience and says, you're next, right? They're coming. You're next because, you know, uh, that is really the ultimate fear factor is that, that you you just watch the show, but think about it yourself. Now, look, Don Siegel, you know, you know, you know, Don Siegel is the director, and of course, a Jewish fellow. We've talked about him before a couple of weeks ago in the the Big Steel. I think this was really, uh, you know, he directs this very crisply, uh, as far as I remember. Um, and 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 you know, last week we spoke about the most dangerous game. The the and I mentioned to you, Yitzchak, that I felt that the you know how many times the 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 idea had been replicated. The invasion of the body snatchers has been done at least three or four times, um, and 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 various films that have ripped it off. So you know, again, there was the remake, the '78 remake with Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams, which, again, the special effects of watching Brooke Adams um, fall apart and crumble—that's <laughs> that that can stay with you for many years as well. Um, and uh, it also ends. I don't know if you've seen the '78 version. Uh, technically, well, you should because uh, you should compare it. There's the you know Donald Sutherland who has been the Kevin McCarthy character who's been arguing, uh, you know, and telling people that the pods are here. At the end of that film, he goes to work, and of course, he, the other people he's been trying to convince are now finally on his side. And when he opens his mouth to speak. He just lets out some sort of primal, terrible, monstrous yell, which I guess is the language of the way the pod people really speak, indicating that he has become a pod person, which is not like the original. But that scream that 
uh, that issues out of Donald Sutherland's mouth is you know is quite terrible. Still, despite the the, the technical um, and, and and power of the remake, I I think that the original still is the champion as far as that goes. And again, there have been many. Um, but Yitzhak, I know that there's besides that film. Now again, we could talk an hour on. Uh, on, on on the invasion of the body snatchers and what its significance was. But there's other films about people's brains being put into someone else's brain and their minds changing. I think there's really more of a similarity, especially as Kirk can't hold on. Like if, if, if we're going with the, you know, turnabout intruder, there's a lot of films in Hollywood, which pretty much had the very same arc where the person that brain that's in that person isn't so stable. And that person sort of, sort of takes on, you know, he's he. It would seem he. It's a transplant, but in some ways, that the mind of the that's been put in there is somehow going to somehow assert itself, despite the body and everything else that's there, right? And I think that's that's another film that you made me aware of, which actually has two of your favorites in it, um, Karloff and Lugosi both, right? And that's right. Uh, it's Black Friday. It's the name of the film, right? Why is it? <laughs> so so Black Friday sort of casts sort of very similar similar idea right to to both of these stories we're talking about right why don't you tell a little bit about what occurs there in black friday right the the story is that karloff plays a a doctor who saves his friend who was shot by a gangster his friend was a very kindly uh, uh english professor and they you know they lived in a small college town and he saves his life by taking a brain transplant or part of partial brain transplant from the gangster that shot his friend uh, and using that as a, a type of therapy to, to save his friend's life. And then he realizes that part of the mind of this gangster wound up uh, you know, in, in the body of his friend, the point where when the the gangster was trying to, you know, had left over some treasure somewhere in New York City, far away from this small college town where they were living, um, that uh, he brings the friend back to New York City to try to find the, the, the loot that the, that the gangster had left behind. And one of the uh, ways that they advertised this film, which was so shocking and, and quite disturbing, was that they said that Lugo that was so Karloff was the was uh, one of the main characters, and Bella Lugosi had a more minor role as one of these gangsters that the the gangster whose uh, you know brain was was uh, you know still in the in the body of this college professor that uh, he wanted to take revenge on all the people that that were responsible for doing him in. And so one of them was played by Lugosi, who uh, he gets killed in the movie. And they advertise this, that he was hypnotized to believe that he was actually getting killed while making this film in order to give a more convincing. uh, (laughs) I see. But basically, I think what you're saying is, is that they they got Lugosi to agree. But really, Lugosi has a pretty minor part. I think the main the main acting, just like. Uh, in the uh, Star Trek episode, which many people think Shatner should have gotten an Emmy for, but because it was preempted by Eisenhower's death, it was too late to be uh, submitted for the Emmys. The main acting 
is the acting of, of, of the professor who changes from this kindly professor and he has to go in the film to sort of become more like the gangster who's, who's part of the brain is now inside his, inside his body, right? Right, and he, and he does this without any makeup, just, just taking off his glasses and throwing back his hair, and, and it's quite impressive how, how he... Right, and, that, and that's, let's say who he is, that's Stanley Ridges, who was uh, born in England, who actually shows up in a number of films in minor roles, but I actually remember him doing a wonderful, uh, a wonderful portrayal of Professor Seletsky in To Be or Not To Be. You know, I, you know, I, I'm a very big chassid of, of Lubitsch, and this is, of course, Lubitsch's, some people think it's one of his best comedies, uh, and he, in, in that role, he also, he plays a pretty, um, he also goes through a, a change, because he's really a Nazi, he sounds like he's really the best friend of all the Polish uh, airmen, but really he is a Nazi turncoat who's trying to gather information in order to, uh, you know, get all these people killed by the Nazis. So Ridge's I think has a history of being able to play uh, a character in a real way where, you know, not just one dimensional. So it's really, would you say probably in Black Friday, and why is it called Black Friday anyway? I can understand why the two other films, the two other shows we talked about, their titles are, are, are self, uh, uh, self-evident. What's the reason why it's called Black Friday? I think because that was the day that, that the Karloff character was executed was, was on a Friday. The movie opens with his uh, his execution, and he hands over his notes about the experiment and everything that happened over to uh, a news reporter, if I remember correctly. And, and the the whole story is told in flashback. The news reporter reading the story, waiting for Karloff to be executed for a murder, and uh, and, and that's really what where it came down to. I believe that it was a Friday that the execution took place. I, I could be wrong, but I think that that's the connection. Well, you know, you know, the, the story was written by Kurt Siodmak. I think that's the way you pronounce right. his name. And he was pretty famous. Um, yeah. you know, he, he, he escaped from the Nazis. He, he was also Jewish. Uh, right. And he, he uh, the, the, the wolf man and many other. And he wrote the, the script guys. for the invisible man returns and, yeah. and, and other things. So Kurt Stein also had the same type of uh, a theme of, of, moving the brain from one to another where and the both Karloff and Lugosi well no Karloff wasn't in that but Lugosi Karloff and Lugosi were in Son of Frankenstein but the Ghost of Frankenstein which was the sequel to Son of Frankenstein uh Lugosi really had his best role in those two films as Igor yes you told we've talked about that yeah but but, you know Siodmak but again this was a, a theme obviously this is not just Look, you have to put enough pot boiler elements into it, the story to get everybody into the seats. Right? There has to be enough there. There has to be gangsters. There has to be. But obviously, what Siodmak and 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 uh, and company are working on here is something a little bit more than just. Uh, it's really like a, an exploration of the Jekyll and Hyde story about what is human being, how a human being could change. Um, I, the director is Arthur Lubin. Um, something tells me, I don't know much about Arthur Lubin, but uh, he did direct Buck Privates, which is uh, one of your favorites, I know, from Abbott and Costello. Um, so it's possible, again, you know, you know, I'm not sure about, the, about whether he was a Jewish person or not, but uh, he also did the, uh, Arthur Lubin also was the, the main producer and director of the Francis the Talking Mule <laughs> series. You might remember that with Donald O'Connor. So yeah, sure. Um, so a lot of I think there was a lot of Jewish energy 
uh, in this film and, and the sense of what is a human being. Uh, so I think all three of these things, all three of these programs, you know, that we're suggesting are really different ways of contemplating what is it that makes us us and who are we? And I think in that way, uh, it, it, you know, seeing it, uh, other program and that another film that really, I saw it, I suppose in my twenties was the first time I saw it. And it also took, a, I probably heard about it. It wasn't shown regularly, um, but it, it's, it shows up uh, today if you do an internet search of, you know, the greatest films of all time, or it, it shows up the greatest American films of all times. It shows up consistently there. Uh, and that is uh, Charles Lawton, who was very well known as, a, as an actor. Um, the, you know, he, was, he was involved with Elsa Lancaster. I think, he was, I think they were actually married. Uh, and yeah. she, of course, was the uh, she, of course, was the bride of Frankenstein. But Charles Lawton was a very exalted uh, actor in the 30s. He was uh, he was much more than a character actor. He won an Academy Award. Um, he was he played the Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was quite quite a, an accomplished person, brilliant man, obviously very smart fellow. Um, and he, this was his only directorial outing. And of course, it's 1955's The Night of the Hunter, which is the story about um, a, a preacher. And it's based on actually real events uh, that occurred in, the, in West Virginia during the Depression. Um, they called the preacher Mr. Powell. His real name, the one it was based on, was a fellow by the name of Powers, who was a, a person who had, I guess, had some sort of uh, training in seminaries and had become a, uh, a, a serial killer, a serial killer of women, and um, based on his life, uh, a novel was written in, in the ni- early 1950s, which was turned into this film from 1955. Robert Mitchum, uh, as I said, stars sort of counter to who he had been up until this point. You know, Robert Mitchum was the, was the king of cool, uh, was this film noir uh, hero, uh, detective, finding out stuff, every man, heartthrob. He was considered like, you know, the Brad Pitt of his day. Everybody was swooning over him. All the girls would swoon over Mitchum, um, you know, and he had been, uh, and, and that had been the case for a, a good 10, 12 years before he made this film. But in this film, he sort of plays not a hero at all. He plays a terrible villain. In fact, one of the most vicious, ugly, cowardly villains, but also a villain who talks to God. Most people know about this, and I'm sure you've seen images of, and this comes out of the book, that he had on his knuckles tattooed on one knuckle the letters L-O-V-E, I think that was on his, uh, on his right hand, and on his left hand, the words H-A-T-E, hate, and the idea of a conflicted person. You know, uh, Mitchum in his preaching uh, in the film constantly refers to the violence of Cain and Abel. And he, when he talks about love versus hate, he always uses incredibly Cain as, and, and it's clear that this is a man that, you know, Charles Lawton and the writer James Agee and others see as a biblical Cain, as someone who murders and keeps on murdering. Um, you know, uh, he is someone who it speaks to God. He's someone who talks to God and says, God, you've written, you put violence in your book. There's a lot of a, a criticism that Lawton had of the United States and, and, and of the religion of its time. There's a, because here you have a person who isn't just a, a, a phony. 
he's a person who actually believes himself to have a connection to God and kills with God's uh, agreement and believes that the books of the Bible sanction what he's doing. Um, he, uh, of course, uh, you know, he's, it, it deals with, uh, it has Shelley Winters, who, again, you can't get Brooklyn out of uh, her. Uh, she's supposed to be playing a, a West Virginia widow who ends up being um, sort of seduced by, uh, by, by this preacher who discovers when he's in jail that, uh, that, that her husband, who is going to be executed, played by Peter Graves, by the way, James Arness's uh, younger brother, um, and of course the star of Mission Impossible, for so many years. Uh, so Peter Graves uh, has, has stolen uh, money from a bank or something or from other people uh, and has a huge amount of money for its time. And he has hidden it somewhere before he was apprehended by the police in the beginning of the film. He's hidden it with his two children who are really in a way with Robert Mitchum, the stars of the movie. Um, the, the two children uh, one of the uh, actors, he is the boy who is nine years old, sort of the same age I was when I saw the Star Trek show. And he is the one who recognizes that he's been entrusted with the money by his father. His father goes to, um, is, is executed and is, goes to, um, and is, is executed and everyone knows about that. And then um, his cellmate in prison, as I said, was, 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 was Mitchum playing Harry Powell who comes to their town in order to find the money, seduce the mother, and somehow discover from the children where the money is. Um, because uh, you know, he, can't get, uh, he can't get Peter Graves to speak about it before he dies, but he's going to find out, and he's going to do the, use the power of the Lord to do that. And of course, the power of the Lord is his own killing ways. Um, as I said, Shelley Winters... Uh, uh, again, she is basically just putty in his hands. Uh, she's someone who is, um, you know, recognizes eventually that he's only after her for the money, but she actually becomes transformed spiritually. Um, she realizes that even though, you know, Harry might be evil, um, the words that he says are spirit, do have some spiritual significance. And she decides to dedicate herself to become a, a, a spiritual woman, to actually work for God um, despite that. And part of what the film deals with is, is her as a sexual being and in general, the, the relationship that Americans had to their sexual life and how, you know, there's plenty of comments there, how ugly it is, how disgusting it is, how, how pure one has to be to really be religious. And this is what she gives her life up to. She almost knows that she is going to be, she's going to be slaughtered. And uh, although you don't see her death, you see her later as she is one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen in Hollywood, which is um, you see her under the water, strapped into a Model T with her throat cut, but with her long hair flowing in the water in a state of what looks like serene suspended animation but obviously dead um and uh you know know, she she gets knocked off pretty easy the the rest of the film is really him chasing the the children because the children have the money 
and the most haunting imagery that almost have ever been put onto Hollywood. Uh, Lawton uh, hired Stanley Cortez, who was the cinematographer for the Magnificent Ambersons and many other films. And what he was looking for um, was a a D.W. Griffith look. He was looking for the silent imagery, the images from silent films, um, where, where the movies were told so much by a shadow, uh, much more by than what the words that were being said. And this film has a fable-like feel to it. It has a feel, has a feel like a fable. It, it, its beauty is really unsettling because, you know, the children make their way down the river, um, you know, escaping from this monster who uses religion, uh, who has a switchblade, who kills women, and he's after them. And the idea of good versus evil and the fact that the adult world is, is, is flawed, the fact that the adult world is, 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 is wrong-centered, the fact that the adult world allows hypocrisy to reign, that allows religious fanaticism to be spread, and that children need to be protected, and that children uh, are, are, are really the, the hope. And yet, is there any hope really for them? Can we change the world around us to allow the children to, 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 to live and be strong and to be unaffected? The film really doesn't, ha- doesn't really offer that as a real possibility because um, you know, the, 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 the children escape and uh, they end up being protected by a woman whose children have left her, but now sees herself as this mother for a number of, of Depression-era waifs who have no place to go. And she is their protector. Uh, she talks to herself. She's eccentric. She's played by what, what, what in, 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 in times 30 years before that, was one of the leading ladies in Hollywood, was Lillian Gish, who plays the role of Ms. Rachel who is the protector of the children. And um, you know, there is a, uh, she represents good. And she reads from the Bible as well. But what she reads from the Bible is about Moses and the bulrushes. She reads about baby Jesus, who is being sought by Herod. To her, the Bible is not about the story of, of Cain and the story of human murder and the story of human murder and human penance but really the stories in the Bible that she celebrates to her children is the, is the innocence and, and significance of these children, these children who grow up to be kings, these children who become figures larger than life. This is what she believes in, despite the Depression terrible era uh, that she lives in. And uh, the standoff between good and evil, which Stephen King, of course, did in The Stand and other places, uh, very much ripping off The Night of the Hunter, in terms of Randall Flagg and the, and I forgot the mother in the stand that represents, uh, you know, uh, the spirituality. It really is taken almost directly from from this film. Um, there's 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 again, it's it's, it's fingerprints are are in many many places um, in terms of this Southern Gothic uh, spirit and idea of what what is good and what is evil. Um, it's 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 interesting. It's look, I think you would find that. She, the mother, Lillian Gish, has five uh, children with her. And one of them looks like she's supposed to be around uh, 12 or 14 or 15. 
yeah, the, the, the oldest, that girl who's sort of like a child, but becoming a woman who's interested in men, who goes and actually the film is very, is very open. I mean, the fact that it passed the censors, she says how she's been with men. It's clear that she's been sleeping. She's been going out and discovering strange men. And she's, she is enamored because she meets the, she meets the hunting, the hunter. She meets uh, Harry Powell. She meets Mitchum. And just like any Bobby Soxer, she's so entranced by him and she's trying to seduce him in a way. And of course, he uses her to discover where the children are, and uh, she's played by Gloria Castillo, um, who um... Uh, the sexual elements of that of of Night of the Hunter. You know, you mentioned that Charles Lawton was married to uh, was married to Elsa. He Lester. was married to her, but he was obviously gay as they come. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, it, it was it was it was a marriage of convenience. Yes, was, I mean, I think they probably I mean, liked it. They loved each other very much, but yes. as friends. But they, but you know, and, and I'm wondering, you know, how much of that is what's coming out. I agree with you, 100 percent, Yitzchak. I was going to mention that, but yes, again, Lawton uses sexuality in this film. He's critiquing typical, you know, um, you know, aggressive sexual behavior. Um, he's talking. He's really criticizing how how um, uh, how America's sensibilities is are very rigid and unthinking. Yes, it's it, it's isn't just about the 1930s West Virginia. It clearly is about the 1950s America that he had to sort of hide in. Um, and I think you know it definitely does have that. You, know, you definitely get that 100. Um, percent And um, it, 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 I, I, he definitely indicates how powerful the drives are, but also how how ludicrous um, our sensibilities about them are. Um, and, you know, in a way, you know, the, uh, you know, I, I guess if somebody, you know, takes a certain message you know, from that, you know, it is that, uh, you know, the idea of, of, of true spirituality, you know, is not to find, is not to be found in the, the ugly rantings that can be taken out of a Bible. Um, and also, again, warning against, um, uh, because the same people that you know Lawton makes a point, the same people that are enamored of Harry Powell when he first comes to town and consider him a great preacher, when they discover that he has is actually a a serial killer, and and, and a seducer and a murderer, they are ready to lynch him. And the same people are out there, and, and Lawton spends a lot of time showing the ugliness of the lynch mob, um, and he seems to relish in it that really, like all great films, things are not <laughs> black and white. They aren't straight. And sometimes, you know, the, the, we are on your way out. Take care. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Music.